It's really important to note, though, that there's a difference between considering some loans to some mining companies for a few projects in the U.S. versus the sheer giant that is China. It's impossible to ignore how much China has put into taking over the mineral supply chain of the planet. Russia's ongoing attack on Ukraine has put a spotlight on global energy markets and sparked a fierce debate in the United States over energy security, and specifically the expansion of domestic fossil fuel production versus an acceleration of the clean energy transition. In this episode, we look at the particularly thorny issue in this broader debate, that is, the complex and evolving supply chain of minerals needed to build the clean energy future. Welcome to Political Climate, a bi-weekly podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute and in partnership with Canary Media. I'm your host, Julia Piper. The clean energy transition will require a lot of raw materials, among them metals and minerals, which are mined out of the earth and processed. For example, power transmission and distribution lines require aluminum and copper, Batteries in EVs require cobalt, lithium, and nickel, and wind turbines require several rare earth elements. Right now, clean energy makes up a small share of the demand for these minerals, but that is projected to grow rapidly. Under an emissions reduction net zero scenario, clean energy will make up over half of global demand for lithium, cobalt, and nickel by 2040, according to the International Energy Agency. So this week, we're joined by J.L. Holzman, mining reporter at e News. Together, we'll unpack the complex but critical questions about raw materials and the related supply chain vulnerabilities that may pose challenges to decarbonization efforts here in the U.S. and around the world. This is a looming issue that's been highlighted by the Ukraine crisis, and an issue that, as we'll discuss, societies will want to get ahead of. Now, before we turn to our interview, we want to hear from you. The Political Climate team wants to get to know our listeners better so we can continue to improve the content we bring you in this podcast. So it would be super helpful if you could fill out the survey we linked to in the show notes. I promise it will not take more than a couple of minutes, and you can do it right on your phone. We really, really appreciate the feedback as it helps us evolve and grow. And thank you, as always, for listening. Now, let's turn to our interview with JL Holzman at e News, along with my co-hosts Shane Skelton and Brandon Hurlbutt with Boundary Stone Partners. Political Climate is brought to you by MCE. A decade ago, Californians started a climate action movement and launched MCE, the state's first community choice energy provider. Community choice providers empower local communities to make their own decisions about the source of their electricity. Today, MCE offers nearly 40 Bay Area communities almost twice as much renewable energy as the state average. The power of MCE is about more than clean energy. It's the power of people over profit. Learn more at mcecleanenergy.org. Political Climate is supported by Fish Tank PR. Before green hydrogen was the topic du jour, before every energy analyst was debating the next two quarters of storage cost declines, the Fish Tank team was entrenched in the clean tech and sustainability sector. Fish Tank brings together industry expertise and a love for storytelling. They're dedicated to putting in the time on media outreach to deliver your company meaningful transactional coverage. Whether your organization is scaling as you go for your Series B or expanding globally and reaching new customers and partners, find out the difference Fish Tank can offer at fishtankpr.com forward slash canary. That's F-I-S-C-H tankpr.com forward slash canary. 
JL, thanks so much for coming on Political Climate. It's great to have you on the show today. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. JL, tell us about yourself. We know you're at e News, but how'd you get there? My background comes from a love of energy and environment journalism. I, I started reporting in Congress uh, as, a, as a legislative researcher for Roll Call and then ended up falling into covering climate for them. Then I went and I wrote about minerals markets for S&P Global, during which I, I fell in love with covering various commodities. What I learned covering the mining industry from a market perspective was that there's not a lot of attention happening in climate journalism right now in the mining space. Uh, when you when you hear a narrative about mining, it's one that, that is a decade or two decades old, one that's divorced from modern mining technologies and mineral shortages. So I joined e News because, frankly, they needed a skeptic. Too often we hear a rosy view of how clean energy will be deployed when there's a really serious raw materials problem. And Understanding that and explaining that to these readers, I thought, was a, a really valuable way to cut my teeth and, and frankly, help improve people's understanding of a, of a complex problem that we're only beginning to deal with, one that's not being comprehensively addressed in Washington and that I think is one of the primary limiters of the, the energy transition. Um, and so I joined e News last fall with a mandate of trying to understand and explain how the transition away from fossil fuels is not a transition away from extraction, but simply a switch to a different form. So JL, what is the landscape of mining products we are talking about? What are the minerals? People may have heard of cobalt and the Congo, but there's a whole plethora of them. Can you just set the scene for us here of what kind of materials we're talking about and what they're used for in the energy transition? The federal government identifies 50 commodities as being critical to national and economic security. And many of those are required for making electric vehicles, making wind turbines, solar panels, transmission lines, the like. Some of them have names you're used to, like copper and lithium. Some of them you don't, like palladium. The problem for EV companies, for companies that want to build this new economy, is that many of these resources are not made in the United States. They're not mined here. They're not processed here. They're not refined here. And many of those minerals are within the control expressly of our adversaries. That puts us in a difficult position one that I don't think the country knows how to how to handle. And so because it's so topical, can you put that in the context of the Russia-Ukraine crisis? We've seen a lot of discussion now around whether the U.S. should have developed more fossil fuels at home because we could have been you know, shipping this product to our allies. And others say, no, we need to get off of fossil fuels immediately. The climate crisis is real. And this is just a, a proof that we need to accelerate the clean energy transition and have more of those clean products used around the world. So just in the context of Russia and Ukraine, where have you seen mining and minerals come up and intersect with the energy transition in ways that kind of maybe create some tensions that we might not be thinking about yet? For years, security hawks in the United States and around, frankly around the world had been sounding the alarm that one day a geopolitical conflict would arise involving an international powerhouse on the, the resource front, and that that geopolitical conflict, some people said China, but in this case it's Russia, would result in chaos in metals markets, would reshape whole global supply chains, and in some cases, probably many cases, raise prices for consumers. It would be inflationary. What we're seeing is the first ever real-life test of that hypothesis, and everyone who said it would truly prove to be damaging were proven right. 
the nation of Russia produces about 7% of refined nickel for the world. They're the largest provider of nickel for the world. When you take 7% of nickel, a key metal for making lithium-ion batteries, off the table for suppliers. It's not the only source of nickel, right? Other places can get nickel. But when you take 7% of the supply off the market, you see prices go gangbusters. You see them hit levels that we've never seen in human history. And what that results in is what we're seeing now, where folks are afraid that the entire energy transition could be stalled, frankly, simply because prices are going to be higher. And and sticker shock is real amongst people who are trying to transition away from ICE vehicles to EVs, for example. We're seeing that as well in palladium. Russia is the largest producer of palladium. We're also seeing that in aluminum. Russia is a large producer of aluminum. Recently, Australia banned exports of key products like alumina to Russia for it to make aluminum. So the alumina aluminum supply chain is already even in more chaos as we're speaking now. And that's a key component in making cars. What do, what do we do with that? Uh, that's, that's a challenge that I frankly don't have the answer to as a journalist. I'm trying to figure it out every day. But, but I think people paid far more than me also are having a difficult time squaring the circle. Right. So you talked about the raw materials that go into clean energy technologies, things like electric vehicles. I do have to say that even today, as we sit here and record this, the cost of electricity and fueling up your car with electrons is much cheaper than fueling it up with fossil fuels, even though electricity prices have risen uh, in recent months and weeks and fossil fuels have risen even more so in recent months and weeks. And so so that all factors into the all-in cost for choosing to drive an EV. Take your point that EVs themselves will become more expensive and maybe even less available. But I just want to note that the fuel is still much cheaper. And so we have to look at all sides of the equation and the calculation. We look at all in costs for clean energy products or, or any product. But all this makes me think that, yes, we definitely as a clean energy industry, have to come to grips with the fact that there are raw materials in the solutions that we need to combat the climate crisis. Point one, accept that. Point two is, okay, what are we going to do about it? Where can we bring in innovation and expertise to find a more ethical, sustainable uh, way of, of extracting the materials we need uh, to make this clean energy future because we can't create something from nothing. And at the same time, we can't do nothing about climate change. So uh, fossil fuels are similarly extractive and come with a climate cost. So it's a hard discussion to have, but there's really no choice but to have it. JL, it's such a pleasure to have you on. And I've been beating this drum for a while um, for our audience. And, you know, when we confronted the Ukraine uh Russia situation a couple of weeks ago, it was one of the things I raised too, which is that I'm all for a clean energy economy. Like I'm 100% into a clean energy economy, but we very much have to acknowledge that we are reliant on foreign minerals, hard stop. So, you know, a lot of people are saying, you know, if the world isn't reliant on Russian gas because we deploy clean energy technology, that'll solve the, the problem. And it won't. We'll just be more reliant on Russia and China for, for other commodities. And so I don't have an answer. And I expressed that very freely last week. I, I can identify the problem. I cannot identify the answer, but I, I am incredibly frustrated that most people are, are unwilling to even acknowledge that this is a, a challenge that we need to address. I'm sure you've run into both sides of this argument. Do you see any progress occurring or are we where we were a year ago? Are we going to keep having this debate you know, amongst different types of uh, professionals over the next five, 10 years? In the interest of not spoiling any of my stories to come, the answer is we're still in the same place. We're still in the same place we were not yet last year, 
not two years ago, not five years ago, but 10 years ago, 15 years ago. That's because special interests on either side have adverse incentives in this debate, right? You've got the National Mining Association on one side, which simultaneously represents coal companies and hard rock mining companies, right? So they advocate for you know, the needs of an industry that needs climate action, and they advocate for the needs of an industry that's opposed to it. So without a, a strong industry lobby in Washington fighting for energy transition minerals solely, there is not that kind of uniform push you would see to get broad bipartisan consensus. On the other side, environmentalists, as I pointed out, you know, there's there's the NIMBY contingent. You know, there's the get off my lawn contingent. I think it's really important to understand that for many people in America, it's pretty comfortable to have these minerals come from other places, right? Get out of my backyard is a is an American sentiment, right? We in some in some level prefer the comforts of our of our modern living, and unfortunately, that will become more difficult as the planet suffers. Uh, climate action is an imperative, right? It's it's something that science tells us we must do or else those backyards that we're afraid of digging in won't be there anymore. They'll be either underwater or they'll be on fire, right? But because mining has a history in this country, a history of polluting, a history of corruption, people don't trust it. It's it's a hard thing. You see that in a, in the Piedmont Lithium Mining Project, for example, in North Carolina, where even though the project is on private land, that project is facing local level opposition to the point where they're worried about their ever getting into production. Then, then the company will just go to Canada, at which point is that good for the United States? It's not for me to say, it's for others. But um, I think that we have not figured a way how to even agree on this subject as a country. Are you saying that we need to do more mining here, more mining sustainably, like in a, like in a more sustainable way? Like what, what is, what's the argument that you're making? I'm not making an argument. Others make the arguments, right? I like to pride myself on being apolitical as a journalist. But, you know, I think it's worth noting that we haven't seen a fully sustainable demand-reduced economy with regards to minerals function before. I mean, that implies that recycling is something that's quite successful. And I think there's a lot of public information to indicate that as a country, we, we haven't put that much effort into succeeding on recycling, right? So the way I like to put it is, Current technology requires more mining. So it sounds like we have this ongoing debate around what to mine in America and in amongst our allies in this national security framework we find ourselves really living in right now. And then how to think about the supply chains from an ethical and environmental standpoint as yet another thing, and perhaps even still educating the broader clean energy world around the fact that mining is an inherent part of it. So I think... There's another thread of this that I my mind goes to around, okay, accepting that mining's part of it, but then doing it in a, an effective way and understanding how to do it in a secure way and really tying all the threads together. Because the alternative is is also damaging. Fossil fuels require mining. We know this. We know some of the issues with fracking and states across the United States have banned it for that reason. It's not like we don't have trade-offs here. It sounds like the next layer is getting more sophisticated in understanding what those are. Um, and not just um, choosing one path or the other, because there's trade-offs on all sides. As Julia said, resource extraction is obviously critical to all of this. And, and I'm curious, just because you've interviewed probably several people who have thought about this from you know geopolitical angles, from national security angle, from a clean energy angle, uh, and I, I have not. Have you heard you know anyone sort of articulate how this is different? So for oil and gas, for example, as you know, what the producers will tell you now is, 
if we put drills in the ground today, that produces oil for the market in two years. Like that doesn't solve our near term supply crunch, but it could provide us certainty out into the future. Now, that's true, but that isn't the path that we want to take, right? The path we want to take is a lower emissions path. And so that doesn't change the fact that we got to start mining these minerals right this second so that this problem doesn't last in perpetuity. I, I have to believe that the same people who are countering the oil narrative have thought of this. I haven't heard literally anyone on earth articulate you know, how urgent this is and why it's important, even if it won't address nickel prices you know, or lithium prices today or cobalt prices today. But I'm guessing you have. So what, what can you teach us there? Yeah. So if you think that mining in the United States needs to happen in an urgent fashion to address climate change, uh, tell it to the Biden administration. I mean, I I spend a lot of time speaking with folks who are who are frustrated with the pace of permitting in the United States. It's not a, a strange thing, but it's really important to note it takes years to permit a mine. Right. And it takes it takes even longer to explore for the potential that you want to mine, right? I mean, developing a mine takes a long time. The place where we lost this race was 15 years ago, not today. In the 2000, the year on 2000, you started to have this commodities boom in China, right? And prices for various metals were going crazy. But then the market crashed, as markets typically do. And the mining industry learned a lesson from that period. The lesson they learned was when prices were high around the turn of the century, they started to put that money into new projects, new assets, et cetera. That included American companies. However, when the market crashed, they sold a lot of those properties, some of which to China, which they now get to benefit from. Now, when prices are high again, the question is, are mining companies putting that money towards these assets that could be helpful in a couple of years and help us deal with climate change? Maybe some of them are. Some of them are investing in in mergers and acquisitions and expanding new mines, etc. But as you're saying, right, we need to ramp that up soon. Uh, That would have been good to do five or six years ago. We're not seeing that kind of urgency. I mean, some mining companies are still giving out fantastic dividends to their investors and putting their money into stuff like that. It's an industry question, right? I mean, you're essentially asking the mining industry, a field where folks are trying to, above anything else, make money for their investors to act in the benefit of the planet by digging up minerals that we need to solve climate change. I mean, these mining companies want to be a part of the future, but wanting to put tons of money into investing in a 10-year mine permitting time span in the United States with little hope that with a change of administration, you might have your entire political reality change, right? I mean, why would a mining company do that? The folks that I speak with these days look at the Biden administration with frustration. There is frustration that the reticence to combine a clean energy investment with a large investment in new mining will lead to higher prices for clean energy products, will lead to slower lead times for the minerals that we need, will put us closer to China and Russia for relying on these minerals when we don't want that. We're not seeing the kind of push that you're looking for. Political Climate is brought to you by MCE. MCE was California's first community choice energy provider. For more than 10 years, MCE has helped communities across the Bay Area source significantly more renewable energy compared to the state's average. Nearly 40 communities are now a part of MCE, and together they're leading on climate action for a brighter future. But the power of MCE is about more than clean energy. It's the power of people over profit. It's community power. 
MCE's efforts on climate justice and energy innovations have helped vulnerable populations qualify for programs like electric vehicles, energy storage, energy savings, and more. By building and buying more renewable energy, MCE puts the power back in your hands. We all deserve a fossil-free future that combats climate change and prioritizes energy equity. Learn more and take action at mcecleanenergy.org. Political Climate is supported by Fish Tank PR. Fish Tank PR is a public relations and marketing firm that was listed as one of Inc. Magazine's 5,000 fastest growing businesses in America last year. As the clean tech and sustainability sectors have boomed, so has Fish Tank. But unlike many large PR firms, the Fish Tank team has been immersed in clean tech for more than a decade, delivering results for clients ranging from renewable energy producers and software platforms to battery manufacturers and green builders. From PR and digital marketing to content writing, the team at Fish Tank helps you develop a strategy of bringing your work to not only wider audiences, but the right audience. They'll listen and learn about the work you're doing on the ground as part of the climate tech revolution and translate that into visibility and strong narratives for your projects. To learn more about Fish Tank's approach to clean tech and services, go to fishtankpr.com forward slash canary. That's F-I-S-C-H tankpr.com forward slash canary. So I do recall under the Trump administration, there were efforts to address the geopolitics of the energy transition by creating a more diverse mineral supply chain. There were initiatives at the DOE and there were hearings held on Capitol Hill to address this. And so I have to imagine that there's some action still taking place now under the Biden administration on this. Can you speak to that, JL? So DOE is currently evaluating mining companies for grants, loans, et cetera, um, various enterprises. I think the program that you're thinking of is the, uh, the Department of Energy's expanded clean energy loan program, which they, they are now giving consideration to applicants. I, I'm not sure the exact total they opened uh, clean energy loans to mining companies at the end of the Trump administration, at the tail end. The Biden administration continued that program. And I've done a lot of reporting on how experts really hoped that, that was going to supercharge this revolution. I actually did a story at my last employer for S&P Global about, you know, the industry actually thought that under Biden, there could be, a, you know, a, a boom in mining in- investment um, akin to what we saw with fracking, essentially you know, we need all of this stuff. We need it out of the ground. Let's get it, right? It seems logical enough. But the problem is the loan program has a history of making bad bets, most notably Solyndra. I would wager that that program puts money out in some capacity by the end of the year. They've, they've been considering projects for, you know, the better part of the last year and a half, right? And I've reported on multiple mining companies coming to them for approval. And so there's some promise that, you know, if, if the, the DOE loans start to come out and trickle out over the next two or so years during the rest of the Biden administration, that perhaps that money will help finance this resurgence, this, re, you know, revolution and what, what, what have you in, in mining. It's really important to note, though, that there's a difference between considering some loans to some mining companies for a few projects in the U.S. versus the sheer giant that is China. It's impossible to ignore how much China has put into taking over the mineral supply chain of the planet. 
I'm doing some work now looking at the scope of their investments. They are getting countries that we want to have good relations with into the Belt and Road Initiative in part through expanded mineral investment. I mean, this is a this is a known strategy of the Chinese government, right? So how do we as a as a country compete with China's cash? We've so far just been writing reports and doing very little to actually invest as a government in this stuff. What you hear in the policy space is that's what actually is necessary, that that the industry wants to be involved, but subsidization is probably going to be necessary in order to get that kind of industry here. Now, as you said, right, there's trade-offs. There's trade-offs with everything. In this case, if we can move on to that, I really think it's worth examining how how the, the trade-off question here is existential for the future of clean energy. So what I think is really important to note, right, is that, you know, you want to have an expanded mining industry in the United States to compete with these other countries. Okay, that sounds great. Well, an MSCI report found in 2020 that Native American reservations are typically located within 35 miles of every major reserve for a transition metal in the United States. That's horrifying if you are an indigenous person. I interviewed somebody in northern Nevada, Duranda Hankey of the Shoshone Paiute tribe about the largest lithium mine in the United States and how there's more than 50 lithium projects being developed in Nevada alone right now and likened it to a genocide. What happens when clean energy companies start to see headlines about that in the news all the time? We haven't even discussed that as a people. And and frankly, Wall Street hasn't really given much concern to the S in the ESG side. It's primarily just been about the E, about the carbon emissions, about how they'll make the planet a better place and be more sustainable. But the S question, you know, the social impact here comes back to what I was saying before about the get out of my backyard folks. I mean, that's on some level, it's about our comfort. On the other hand, there are people who will be genuinely harmed by mining expanding in the United States. They will have their most precious land taken away from them or ripped to shreds. I think it's worth understanding that there's not a conversation happening in Washington around this in a comprehensive fashion at all. It's a massive risk to these industries, and it's it's getting very little attention. I didn't want to interrupt, JL, but uh, history of making bad bets uh, is how you refer to the loan program. Just for our listeners, uh, 98% of those loans were good bets. Uh, 2% were, good. were bad bets. So just so no, that we're clear. Yeah. That, no, I want to clarify my remarks on the program. It's a great program in terms of its, its track record. Unfortunately, the few bets that went bad have led to a public image that in far as I know, is is at least somewhat contributing to the trepidation with which DOE is is looking at, you know, mining loans. I mean, the mining industry is a high risk industry on Wall Street. And if DOE is operating like a bank, it's going to be viewing those industries with a special level of scrutiny. That's what that's what I was trying to say. Thank you for clarifying that. You're that's right. Fair. You're totally right. They have 98 success rate. Absolutely. Right. But the optics are a thing. I know that under the infrastructure bill, there was almost $3 billion that went into strengthening the U.S. supply chain for advanced batteries and energy storage. There was also the Energy Storage Grand Challenge. That is actually the program I was thinking about under the Trump administration. That was Daniel Simmons, who was the Assistant Secretary for the Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy. And he talked a lot about the intersection of geopolitics and clean tech. Even under the Trump administration, they were looking ahead to that despite um, having a fairly fossil fuel-focused policy initiative. And we 
actually had Dan Simmons on the podcast, which I will link to in the show notes. But zeroing in again on the geopolitics, there was a New York Times Daily podcast episode recently that looked at the issue of cobalt in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And another layer to this is how that resource will be addressed in in Africa and in these countries where China has had a longstanding presence or maybe you know established themselves there first. And so it's become another potential proxy economic battle through these other nations to think about how the global superpowers get their uh, clean energy supply chains up and running. JL, what are your thoughts on that and how the U.S. and China and others are vying for these supply chains in these African countries? And, and what does it mean for those countries themselves? On the New York Times daily coverage of the DRC, I would really hope folks try and have a, a wider lens about the impacts on the Congo specifically. I, I did a tweet thread about this, pointing out the many inaccuracies in the daily episode and in the, the New York Times coverage of the Congo. I really think it's important to note that little in these conversations about geopolitics, are we talking about the, the workers, about the actual miners involved, and how their working conditions are related less to which countries in charge and more what kinds of work agreements do they have? Do they have a union? Are they given a part-time versus a full-time job? I really hope that we have more conversation about that in the mix. When it comes to the larger geopolitical conversation, I think it's still in its infancy. There's there's a big push in Washington and elsewhere to have these, you know, multinational mineral sharing agreements. Um, you know, the U.S. wants to see Canada and Australia as allies in this fight. And both Canada and Australia could be incredibly helpful for us if we ever want to divorce fully from China uh, in a world where that is somehow possible. Uh, these two countries would be terrific for us. It's important to note, though, that, you know, once again, China is deploying a lot of cash and the U.S. is writing reports and so if what you'd like to see is, you know, the United States investing more heavily in, in occupying these spaces like the DRC, um, you know, that's that's not happening right now as far as my reporting is concerned. There's a desire to engage, but when it comes to investing in mining, it's really important to note the risk. And it would be interesting over time to see how the U.S. tries to fight in these arenas. Well, we recently had Lauren Sanchez on the podcast, who is a senior climate advisor for Governor Newsom of California. And she talked about the Lithium Valley Initiative that's in his budget here in California, where we're all based. And there is a lot of excitement, I think, in the clean tech world about it. To your point, we'll have to see if these other you know, social conversations come into the mix and it's not as achievable as maybe they hoped. But I think it'll be... If I can interrupt on the Lithium Valley thing, by the way, I'm working on stuff about how the, the Lithium Valley projects... It's really important to understand that geothermal as a, as a tactic for lithium extraction is really far off. And if we as a country are going to try and wean ourselves off from fossil fuels, there are many lithium projects being developed in the United States that are far closer to being economically viable than some of those being developed in the Lithium Valley. The specific technique they're looking for extracting this lithium through geothermal extraction in the Salton Sea that specific method is farther off from being commercially viable 
than the extraction techniques being deployed, let's say, in Nevada or at Standard Lithium in Arkansas or, frankly, at most lithium mines. It's a novel. So you're talking about separating from the brine, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm talking about the specific technology that they're deploying in the the Salton Sea. It's, It's worth exercising a bit of trepidation on what will come online versus what will be viable. Um, There's a lot of confusion out there. So kind of going back to the beginning, because again, it is a topical issue right now, is the Russia and Ukraine conflict. And I really wanted to ask you about another element of this, which is uranium. And we're seeing a lot of tension around nuclear power plants, which Russia has taken control of in the Ukraine a very disconcerting situation. And that's even another clean energy resource that a lot of people have a debated, but also look to for reliable clean energy. But we're learning about that supply chain also having some some real national security and supply chain challenges. Could you just walk us through that as a final element here? Sure. Uranium is my favorite commodity to write about, primarily because everyone who talks about it on Twitter is really weird. There's an entire contingent <laughs> on the internet called Uranium Twitter. And I would advocate any listener to go to the subreddit Uranium Squeeze, which exists because I did a story about these awesome people on the internet that love uranium. And then they made a subreddit about my reporting. Highly recommend. They have like (laughs) 25,000 people in that group right now. Highly recommend. Wow. So many more uranium lovers than I ever imagined. You'd be very surprised. The reason why is because many people are making money off of the uranium price boom. So at the start of the coronavirus pandemic, there was a lot of uranium out in the market because after the Fukushima Daiichi accident in 2011, a lot of people didn't want to use a nuclear power plant. And that resulted in a glut of excess nuclear fuel supply being left out in the market without a destination. So fast forward to 2020, the coronavirus pandemic happens, the price of uranium is still super depressed, but mines have to shut down because people can't go to work or else they'll die. Go figure, right? So over the course of 2020, it became clear that enough supply would wind up being used over time that the glut would go away. Enter more market participants, enter a trust called the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust, which is just hoovering up uranium in the, in the, that was left out in excess just to like hold on to it and store it and then give investors exposure to the rising price as it did that. And you wind up in a uranium bull market that nobody expected and that threatens to raise prices for consumers of energy from nuclear power, also probably going to end up bringing more uranium mines online. It's really interesting phenomenon. And the the war in Ukraine exacerbated it even further because Russia is a primary source for nuclear fuel enrichment. The question of whether or not we'll be able to wean off of Russia or that supply chain is one that I, I, I don't think anyone has the answer yet. The Nuclear Enterprise Institute probably doesn't want <laughs> to have everything in chaos, you know, but I, I would wager that over time, what you're going to see is something similar to what you're, you're seeing in the in the other the other transition metals that that folks are, are starting to understand in a very small, basic way. It's, it's in its infancy, but it's going to happen over time that if you lack control of these resources, you will be vulnerable to ever more volatile price fluctuations till you get to a point where the cost of living in your economy is dependent on other countries and their chaos. And you have the power to control it, but it's up to you whether or not you want to dig in your backyard and get that control. 
Such a wild like paradigm shift when you think about globalization and the courses I took in undergrad and just how we're seeing kind of a reversal of people's attention and focus and priority. And I will flag on the Russia uh, uranium supply chain question. I think it also raises concerns around the Iran nuclear deal and whether or not Russia will participate. So just to close this out, this is a political podcast. How are you seeing these debates play out politically among Democrats and Republicans. We are in an election year. So I just want to get your final read here on how Democrats are using some of the stuff we've discussed today, how Republicans are using it, and how you think that might inform the election this fall. This is becoming a midterm issue. The Republican Party has put out a lot of information telegraphing that it's going to use our reliance on minerals as a cudgel against the Democrats in the coming election. Whether or not that will work is yet to be determined. If experts are correct, at a minimum, when voters go to the polls, they may have higher prices because of this reliance on foreign minerals. But also high gas prices um, due I mean, to global it's, factors. It's, it's a, you know, <laughs> tying it all back together, right? Yes, there's high gas prices. But what if your EV is more expensive, a new EV is more expensive because of these higher mineral prices than, you know, paying a little bit more at the pump? Right. I mean, that that was that was a chief concern of those advocating that, you know, weaning off Russian gas and rising gas prices is going to lead to a transition. I'm not, I'm less sure of that, because if prices for consumers are higher across the board and the cost of these metals remain inflated, if everything's getting more expensive, then no one's going to notice that the fossil fuels are part of that. They're just going to think my life is getting more expensive. And if the oil prices dip faster than the other prices, then you're in a situation where suddenly having a nice vehicle is so much cheaper than having an electric vehicle. And that's, that's not good for the climate. So, you know, I, I, politically speaking, this is a really salient point. I also think, and, and this is, this is a complete tangent, but I think that Hunter Biden's involvement in the very tangential involvement in the sale of Tenge Fugurume, a cobalt mine in the Democratic Republic of Congo is, is it, it allows the Republican party to point out, Hunter, and they're already telegraphing that they might end up investigating him if they take back the House. They're, you know, I, I, I've talked to the White House about this. This is a an issue that will that will ring for years to come in the Republican Party. They are looking at making critical minerals a really, really big point of theirs if they take back Congress. What happens if critical minerals and and these energy minerals are politicized and polarized even more, you know, the points that you were raising earlier about, you know, what is the U.S. doing about this? Can the parties agree? Uh, They don't agree now on much. They are closer to agreeing on these minerals uh, in a very broad sense. But, you know, little's getting done. Very little will get done if it becomes fully polarized. If suddenly, you know, President Biden is being investigated over a Congolese cobalt mine. Right. I mean, that would that would be that would be a treacherous, a treacherous place to go in terms of mineral security progress. We'll talk about being far off of the investments that China's making if this gets embroiled in a political battle versus a strategic and, and, and informed debate and discussion uh, on behalf of U.S. national interests. then we'll really be just that much further off of, I think, where other players around the world are going, which would be a shame. Because I think what's missing in this whole dialogue is let's let's play it out. Let's get the data. Let's see what commodities increase, what 
product price by how much and let's have an educated debate on what that looks like and what consumers want and then what we value as a society like a livable planet because there's values on all of these things at the end of the day and we need leaders to step in and help number crunch with the right experts to come up with what that landscape should look like and so I think if I'm hearing anything there's a lot of factors at play and hopefully we can empower the people who who can weigh them in an effective manner to lead the charge on this. Yeah, I mean, if I would say, I mean, this is this can be best summed up in one word, chaos. No one is actively, I mean, the the, the comprehensive discussion is 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 lacking. Um, it, it's it's difficult because I think I think environmentalists want to do the right thing. I think that the folks fighting for climate policies want to do the right thing. But as I said at the start of this, fighting for a global optimum is different than let's say you know saving an endemic species or something. This is trying to bring us all together, you know, fighting for the planet on some fashion might require us to all come together and find something that doesn't make everyone happy in the same way. But, you know, maybe climate action has to be messy a little bit. Maybe it, it will end up being that way because, you know, <laughs> that's life. <laughs> it's, it's already messy. It's already messy enough. You know, might as well, might as well figure it out. Well, I'm glad we all tied it up in a bow just there. I think we saw most of it, you know. Uh, Well, JL, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate you coming on the podcast and challenging us and informing us. It was really a good conversation. Thanks. Glad to be here. And that brings us to the end of this political climate episode. As I mentioned at the outset, we would really appreciate it if you could fill out the survey that we linked to in the show notes. Again, it will just take a couple of minutes, do it right from your phone, and it'll give us super valuable feedback as we continue to evolve and grow. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And also a thank you to our producer, Maria Virginia Alano, and to our editor, Kyle McDonald. This show is presented in partnership with Canary Media and supported by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. Catch us on Twitter at poly underscore climate or on Instagram with the same handle. That is all. Fill out the survey and we'll be back again soon.